I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we are interpreting Romans. Our text is Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. Having established us more firmly in the gospel of grace in chapters 1 through 11, Paul has now turned to the application of grace. How then shall we live? In our last lesson, we recognized the first two verses of chapter 12 as a model for Christian living. Respond, present, renew. Now from 12.3 to 15.13, Paul gives us several scenarios in which to apply the model. Where do you think Paul will start? What's his first scenario? The body of Christ. Paul doesn't argue for it. Paul assumes it. You live out the gospel of grace in the community of grace. You are born again into a body of believers. Paul assumes that when you ask, how then shall I live? You're not asking, should I live as part of a local community of believers? Of course you should. Paul assumes your question is not, should I live in Christian community? But how should I live in Christian community? We've agreed with Paul that God is supremely merciful, that we want to present ourselves to God, and that in presenting ourselves to God, we need to know what his good and acceptable and perfect will are. We agree that we do not know his will naturally. We need to be renewed in our mind to understand his will. So even though we know his will is to participate in local Christian community, we also recognize the need for continual renewal in how we perceive the local body of believers. We do not just want to present ourselves to service in community. We want to grow in understanding how to present ourselves in a way that honors God. Remember the three parts of the model. Therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. That's a response from our heart to the love of God displayed to us in the grace of Jesus. We live as a response of gratitude and worship. That is the heart at the center of our circle. Next, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. At the top of our circle, we have the word present. We do not wait to be perfect. We ask, what's the wise thing to do? And we do it to the best of our ability. Recognizing our limited wisdom, we have at the bottom of the circle the word renew. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. To know God's will, we need to be in this continual process of present and renew, present and renew. Coming into our first scenario about the body of Christ, Paul doesn't describe again the heart motive of grace. From this point on, we're assuming the heart motive. Though when you put the model into practice in a concrete situation, it's helpful to remind yourself why you're doing what you're doing. Get into the practice of taking a moment in prayer to offer yourself to God out of a grateful heart as an act of worship. When you think about the body of Christ and some act of service or involvement, envision yourself holding yourself up to God as an offering. Before you go to worship on Sunday or before you enter a meeting before you lead Sunday school or participate in an outreach or arrive at home group or shake somebody's hand at the door or look at the prayer list or clean up after service. Before you do anything, take a moment to mentally present yourself to God. You can see yourself giving yourself into his hands. Here I am, God, because you are so awesome and because you've been so very gracious to me. Here I am. I present myself to you as I interact with my brothers and sisters in Christ. This is a service of worship. And that changes our stance towards the body of Christ. 
our approach to the body of Christ becomes most fundamentally a response of grateful worship. It's not most fundamentally about what I'll receive, but what I bring. But it's not what I bring to other people. I bring myself as an offering not to people, but to God. And even though I don't always receive what I want from community, I offer myself to God. Even though I might be hurt in community, I offer myself to God. Even though people might let me down, I'm offering myself to God. I also recognize that I don't really know what I'm doing. I need to grow in my understanding of the body of Christ. The body It's so complicated. I, I need to know me. I need to know other people. I need to know various aspects of um, service and activity. And, and I just don't know it. I need to be renewed as I go. And Paul's going to help us with that. His focus in 12, 3 through 8 is renewal of the mind so that we can continue to present ourselves in a way that's more and more in line with his heart and his will. How do we understand our participation in the body of Christ? The text is in three parts. First, you need to renew your mind and how you view yourself as an individual. Then you need to renew your mind and how you view yourself as a member of the body. And finally, you need to renew your mind and how you view your contribution to the body. So yourself as an individual, yourself as a member of the body, and your contribution to the body. Let's read the text. This is Romans 12, 3 through 8. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of yourself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Before thinking about the body of Christ, Paul challenges us to think about how we view ourselves. This is verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. The pastor may be tempted to think highly of himself because he gets to preach at everybody else on Sunday, because he receives praises and smiles and handshakes. At the same time, there are just as many people tempted to criticize the pastor's sermons and feel superior to him because he's a little odd, or he's not the best speaker, or he makes certain mistakes, or because he doesn't live up in some other way. And the pastor is always the easiest example to pick on. He's one guy, and he's up front a lot. The reality is that we are constantly comparing ourselves to all the other people in the body of Christ. We're making mental notes and judgments that sometimes make us feel better about ourselves and sometimes make us feel worse. Who are you comparing yourself to in your local body of believers? To other single men? To other mothers? To other people doing the same ministry as you? To people doing a different ministry than you? To someone's personality or beauty or success or spirituality or talent? 
There are people in your church that you look up to and want to emulate, and there are people you look down on and criticize. Max Lucado wrote a wonderful little book called You Are Special, describing a people who went around all day sticking either yellow stars of approval or gray dots of disapproval on one another. And the main character, Punchinello, excelled at collecting gray dots. Paul's focus seems to be towards those people who have gathered a lot of yellow stars. He warns against thinking of yourself too highly. Bring your estimation of yourself in line with sound or sober judgment. Think of yourself rightly. We can experience the same temptation in the other direction to think of ourselves too lowly. It's not hard to create Facebook or Instagram profiles of other people in our minds. The people with yellow stars, you know, they have a great family of high-achieving children, and they post photos that show themselves simultaneously serving the poor, succeeding at work, playing with their kids, enjoying exotic vacations. I don't know where they get all the time. You know, we imagine they're these yellow star people. And it's not, of course, it's not a clear picture. Social media condenses life into a highlight reel, and it's only what people choose to put up there. It's Facebook. It's where we show our best face. And looking at other people's highlight reels, it's easy to feel like Punchinello. It's easy to feel covered in gray dots. And maybe we swing between the two, sometimes successfully comparing ourselves and earning stars, and at other times failing in comparison, receiving dots. And we receive them from other people, but we also receive them from our own internal voice. We're putting stars and dots on ourselves. Paul's exhortation to sound judgment says, resist thinking about yourself too highly, that's pride, and resist thinking about yourself too lowly. That's not humility. Humility is not thinking badly about yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself accurately, sometimes badly, sometimes with praise, according to God's estimation. So one day Punchinello meets a strange girl named Lucia with no stars and no dots. She's really unusual. They just don't stick to her. And she doesn't mind. Lucia has met her creator. She doesn't define herself by her internal voice. She doesn't define herself by the voices in society. She defines herself by his voice. His voice does not say what we want to hear. His voice speaks the truth. It is that truth, the good and the bad, that has the power to set us free, if we're willing to hear it. And when I think about myself with sound judgment, I think I'm sinful, I'm fallible, I'm limited, and I'm inexperienced. I'm also created in God's image, I am gifted, I am skilled, and I have some pretty cool experiences. God does not define me in comparison with other people. God doesn't even define me in comparison with Jesus. When I am perfected, I'll still not be Jesus. You know, I'm being conformed into his image, but not into his being. He is man and God. I'm just man. And God has a vision of me as he's created me to be. That's the standard he holds me up to. The standard I'm being held up to is his vision of a perfect Michael. Not any Michael, but Michael Brent Michael. The standard of his own vision for me. 
and I'm a man in process. I'm not yet, I'm not yet there, but God has gifted me. I still struggle with this body of flesh, with selfishness and pride and lust. That's where I am right now. I have to think of myself with sound judgment, but I'm someone going somewhere. To be honest, I struggle to think of myself with sound judgment. We all do, and we all do in different ways according to our personality and according to our inner voice. I'm a competitive middle child. I've been conformed by my birth order and by my personality. And I have this voice in my mind that tells me every day, you're not good enough. You should do better. You don't live up. You should regret that. You should feel bad about that. And it's, I know it's not the voice of my mom or my dad. They've always encouraged me. I know it's not the voice of my brothers who are better than I deserve. It's my own inner voice. I do not relate fully with Punchinello. I've received a high number of gold stars. You know, I get my fair share of praise. Where I do relate to Punchinello is in my inner voice. I move in the direction of false humility. I like the stars. I mean, to be honest, I like them, but I often disagree with them. I think they're I think other people are wrong when they praise me, and I feel like I don't deserve the stars and I overcorrect with self-criticism. I want to call my melancholy reasonable and sound judgment, and sometimes it is. Often I fail to acknowledge amazing truths about who God has made me to be. You know, he's the one who said I'm created in his image. He's the one who's redeemed me. He's the one who's gifted me with his Holy Spirit and giving me skills and talents and opportunities. Sound judgment for me means acknowledging and accepting all the great things that God has put into my life and made into me, and also accepting that I am in process, and I'm not perfect, and I'm not intended to be perfect. I never will have all the gifts. I will, I'll never have the perfect personality, and that's okay. And somehow I have to, to be sound in my judgment. I have to accept that. So that's how it's working in me. That's a bit of my inner challenge, my inner voice. And as I said, because we have different personalities and different experiences, you have your own unique challenges in how you think about yourself with sound judgment, at what times that you're tempted to think more highly than you ought, and what time you're tempted to think more lowly than you ought. Paul includes another phrase in verse 3 that we should consider. Think of yourself as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. I used to think that meant we each have a different amount of faith. One person has a thimble full, another person has a cup full, another person has two liters full. And in a sense, that helps me see myself soberly. There's some truth in that somewhere I know. It's it's okay that I'm not Billy Graham or Hudson Taylor or William Wilberforce. I act out of the measure of faith God's given me. There's something like that in Ephesians 4-7 where Paul says, To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then Paul talks about how we have one hope, but we each have different gifts, and we should live out of those gifts. That's what Paul's going to talk about in verses 6 through 8. So that interpretation could work here. But I think Paul's saying something different. He wrote in Ephesians 4.13 that our goal should be to grow to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. In this sense, Jesus Christ is the measure, 
not as a proportion measured out, but as the measure or the standard to which we aspire. And I think that's what Paul's saying. This measure is not in the sense of a portion, but in the sense of the standard. And if he had used the word grace, I'd lean towards measure as a portion. You know, he's proportioned us each grace in the sense of giftedness, which is a portion differently. But Paul's use of the word faith here, that it's the measure of faith, leans me towards a measure in the sense of standard. Your standard for understanding yourself with sound judgment is not comparison with other people. Your standard is the faith you have received. You should look at yourself through the lens of the gospel. You accept that you're sinful, and you accept that God values you so much he died for you. You accept that you're saved, but not yet complete. You are in process. This is the standard of your faith. It's the measure by which you judge yourself. It's by these gospel truths that you're able to see who you really are. I love how the stars and dots don't stick to Lucia. She gets grace. She's accepted by her creator. His love is enough. He defines her. The result is a kind of self-forgetfulness. She's not worried about judgment. She's not comparing herself to other people. She'd be a great friend. And Tim Keller describes this result of grace as emotional humility and emotional wealth. Grace shows us who we are in a way that creates emotional humility and that we come to understand that we really are no different from anyone else. We've sinned in our own ways, and we have this potential to sin just as wickedly as anyone else. We also recognize that all other people are valued as God's creation just as we are. Grace creates this kind of humility. The gospel of grace also leads to emotional wealth. When I see myself as I am, what does it matter if someone else gives me a star or a dot, slights me or rebukes me? I am loved by my Father. My honor comes from Him. He is filling me up. I can take some things from others. I can take some mess. I can let it go. My role in this body of believers is not to find my value in comparison and not to be the one who defines other people by my judgments. My role is to accept myself according to the measure of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to offer myself to God to help his body to grow and to thrive. Next, Paul moves from thinking about ourselves to thinking about ourselves as part of a community. Let's read that in verses 4 to 5. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Verse 4 gives us Paul's standard analogy for Christian community. It's the analogy of a body with many members. He wrote the same thing in 1 Corinthians 12 and the same thing in Ephesians 4. And the analogy allows Paul to maintain two realities that are in tension with one another. And as Christians, we want to maintain these tensions. We want to recognize the truthfulness of both things. First, Christians maintain their unique individuality when they come to Christ. We're not meant to look and think and feel like every other Christian. We're meant to be unique and different. On the other hand, we do become part of a corporate community. And we have obligation one to another. We're part of a body. 
Both of these things are true. How we think about this reality depends in a large degree on the leaning of our cultural values. American values lean towards the individual. Croatian values lean more towards community. So Americans are more comfortable with people going off and doing their own thing, whereas Croatians value more that everyone decide and act together. A Nigerian man attended our church here in Croatia for a couple of years, and though there's some distance from American to Croatian values regarding community, there is much more distance from Croatian to Nigerian values regarding community. I asked Emmanuel, for example, how long a church service in Nigeria would last, and the answer was four or five hours. And it would include a meal, and basically you spend the whole day together. Sunday is a community day. So for him, Croatian church was very individualistic. And I don't think he was ever really able to feel comfortable with our short, everybody come in and everybody leave Sunday service. It just didn't feel right. So the person coming from an individualistic society may struggle to understand the reality and the importance of Christian fellowship and unity. They just don't feel it as strongly naturally. Whereas the person coming from a communal society may struggle to understand how to promote individual uniqueness and initiative. It just it's not their natural bent. So not only is our view of the body conformed to certain patterns based on our society, it's it's also conformed based on our experience of church. So if you grew up in a local church community, then you you have this pattern that you grew up with. So, for example, in a very large church, there might be a lot going on, and there, there are all kinds of ways to contribute, but and there's all kinds of stuff to receive. And so we come to church as a place where we, where we do our thing, we, we give what we give, and we get what we get, but we could really miss meaningful relationship and connection. In a small church, we might be expected to be present three times a week, and we might know everybody's name, and um, we know where everybody lives, but maybe there are only a few select roles to fulfill, and there's there's not a lot of place for us to to engage and use our giftedness. Everybody's so similar. We can't uh, see how our individualism fits. Paul's teaching here is minimalistic. We He's giving us a starting point, but we really have to think this out ourselves according to who we are and according to what our our church situation is. He leaves a lot for us to figure out. He doesn't describe here the optimal size of the body or the activities of the body or the style of worship of the body or the structure or the authority of the body. He's giving us a basic starting point. And this is the basic starting point. Do you see yourself as an individual who has uniqueness and value? Can you accept that God sees how you fit even if you don't see how you fit? God sees you, God sees your uniqueness, God sees how you contribute. And can you accept that the Christian life is intended to be lived in community? You do not belong to yourself, you belong to God, and God has placed you in the community. Just as you were not created to experience life apart from relationship with your Creator, you were not created to experience life apart from from a community of believers. And this is deep in who God is. In some mysterious way, God is one, and yet God is many. 
The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are an eternal community. So we image God as individuals and how he's created us, but we also image God in community and in the love of community. How do we show the love of God as an individual? Well, we don't. You have to have at least two, and he's three. So in community, we're able to image God in a way that cannot be done as an individual. This is God's plan. God's God's plan for us is to be individuals who are part of a community. It's not a uniform community, but it's a unified community. So if you withhold yourself from the body of believers, then the body is lacking an eye or a finger or a foot or an ear. When you withhold you, you are withholding something valuable that God has designed to help make the body complete. And don't try to overthink it. Your value may be in a place you've never realized. You might be the perfect person to bring comfort or challenge or connectedness to some other person you're not even aware of. Without you, they might never fit. I mean, if you're struggling and you're needy and you just can't imagine what you have to offer at this point in your life, People in the body need to love, and God might need you in the body not for what you give, but that you provide opportunity for other people to grow in love as they give to you. Again, I don't want to overthink it. You don't have to see your value. It's helpful. It's motivating. It's desirable. We want to know how we fit and why we matter, but whether you know or not, this is a point of faith, a point of renewing your mind. Are you willing to accept the truth that you're part of a larger community? If you are in Christ, you are a member with others who are in Christ. That is a spiritual reality. Even if your community may seriously struggle to live out that reality, the difficulty of living out who God's made us does not change the spiritual reality. That's true just as much for the body as it is for us as individuals. My difficulty in living out the Christian life doesn't change the fact that I'm born again. And our difficulty in living in Christian community doesn't change the fact that we are a spiritual body. So are you willing to accept by faith that you're a member of a spiritual body? And are you willing to accept by faith that God says you matter to that community? For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Paul wants us to be growing in how we think about ourselves, and he wants us to be growing in how we think about the body, and he wants us to be growing in how we think about our contribution to the body. He gives us a list of how the Spirit of God equips us differently. Let's read the list again. This is verses 6 through 8. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, If service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Paul also gives lists of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians and Ephesians in the passages about the body of Christ. And none of the lists are the same. The list of the Ephesians is for leaders who need to use their gifts to equip everyone else for service. 
The list of the Corinthians includes miraculous gifts like healing and speaking in tongues, which had become problematic in the Corinthian church, and Paul needed to say something about that. The Romans list is fairly unique. Only the gifts of prophecy and teaching are mentioned in Corinthians and Ephesians. The rest of the gifts listed here are unique to this list. And even though a comparison of these three lists is quite interesting, especially if we add the one from Peter, that's a topic for another study. For now, let's just stick with what we have here in Romans. I'm assuming the giftedness in Romans is not natural talent, but a gifting of the Holy Spirit. That's clear in the statement in 1 Corinthians. John Stott argued in his book, Baptism in Fullness, that in recognizing God's sovereignty, we should not be surprised to see that some of our natural talents and learned skills fit nicely along with our spiritual giftedness. God envisions us as whole people, and he's at work preparing us for the body of Christ long before we believe. It's no problem to develop in us skills and talents that will come to life spiritually only after our new birth. On the other hand, our skills and vocation may not line up with our giftedness. A teacher may or may not have the gift of teaching. A business executive may or may not have the spiritual gift of leading. We have to consider ourselves with sound judgment. Let's consider the list and then consider how we identify our own giftedness. Paul starts the list with prophecy. Prophecy can include telling the future, but that's not what biblical prophecy is all about. In the Old Covenant, prophets either brought covenant as a mediator, like Moses, or they called the people of God back to the covenant, like Elijah, Isaiah, and Micah. So it's this calling people back to God's word, which is the essence of biblical prophecy to call people to the Word of God in light of current circumstances with a view towards future blessings or future consequences depending on the response of the people to the Word. Prophecy differs from teaching in that biblical prophecy is an act of revelation. The prophet receives the Word of God and communicates the Word of God to the people of God, which is one reason prophecy is treated very seriously in Scripture because the prophet is claiming to have a revelation from God. The seriousness of prophecy as a gift is seen in its placement at the beginning of the gift lists. Here Paul lists prophecy first. In 1 Corinthians and Ephesians, he lists prophecy second, but only after apostleship. Paul adds that the prophet should exercise the gift of prophecy in proportion of his faith. And as with the measure of faith reference above, Proportion of faith could have to do with the amount of one's faith or with the standard of faith. And since we're talking about prophecy, I lean towards standard of faith. The words of the prophet should be in accordance with the gospel of Jesus Christ that the prophet has come to believe in by faith. It's that personal vision, the opening of the eyes to see the gospel that create the standard by which the prophet should measure his prophecy. Is it in line with the revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ? The gift of service comes next, and it's a root word meaning to wait on tables. It takes us back to the seven men chosen by the apostles in Acts 6 to organize contributions for widows. And this fits with the idea of a deacon who helps with the material care and organization of the Christian community. The phrase, if service in his serving, indicates that if this is his gifting, then he should use his gifts accordingly. If you have the gift of service, then serve. 
The same phrase is used for teaching. If you are gifted at teaching, then teach. The gift of exhortation could mean comfort or encourage, or it could mean urge others to live out the truth. And I'm not sure that we have to make a decision or choose between one or the other. Since the gift comes right after teaching, I think about it in terms of communicated truth. Whether that truth is communicated to spur someone on to action, or whether it's communicated to give comfort in grace. Either one fit with the idea of exhortation, helping others to see the truth. The one who gives could be one who serves the church in a ministry of distributing material resources. So he could be in charge of a food pantry. Or he could be gifted to give from his own resources. And again, I don't think we have to limit the gift too narrowly. We can recognize that it might manifest differently in one person than in the other person. Paul says the one who gives should do so with simplicity. It also might mean to to be generous. Um, Simplicity is the clearer meaning. Again, both work. Our giving should be done with simplicity, and it should be done liberally. The next gift means to preside over. It suggests the idea of leadership in the church, and it should be conducted with diligence. The final gift of showing mercy might have in mind the care of the poor or the sick or the elderly. And Paul says to exercise this gift with cheerfulness. Paul's gift list gives us a snapshot into the activity of the local church. You you can imagine this, that Paul's writing to the Romans, and this is what he expects. He expects that there are people there who are practicing the gifts of prophecy, who are involved in service, who are teaching who are giving exhortation, who are giving out of their resources, who are leading and who are showing mercy. And he hasn't limited his comments to leaders. He's directing his comments to all the members of the body. So we could take this for ourselves. We are being called to participate in these various kinds of community activity, in the teaching of the church, in the service, in the exhortation, in the giving in acts of mercy. And we need to grow in our self-knowledge so that we can present ourselves for service according to our giftedness. This fits with Paul's earlier challenge to consider ourselves with sound judgment. Don't go after the gifts that bring prestige in your circles. Don't try to be somebody you're not. On the other hand, don't deny the giftedness you have. Consider your strengths and your abilities, and seek to be developed along those lines. Of course, this raises the question, how am I gifted? How do I know? How do I discover how God has gifted me? And here are three practical recommendations. First, engage in ministry. Find ways to serve in your local Christian community, in your church. Renewing of the mind generally follows presenting the body. You can't fully know who you are without giving yourself to the work of the church first. And do it generally. Try to be involved in in different ways of serving. Be humble. Don't seek position. Respond to needs. Serve in different ways. Learn how to share your faith. Learn how to lead a small group. Teach children. Serve in a ministry of care or worship. Help wherever you can. And you learn about yourself by the doing. That's first. Second, as you present yourself in service over time, 
Trust God to use you in the lives of other people. You're praying and you're trusting God. You're offering yourself as you serve. And in service or organizing or giving or teaching, if you see others coming closer to God because of your service, then that's a sign of your spiritual giftedness at work in what you're doing. So in this, ask for feedback. Seek development. Ask others that you trust, how do they see you fitting in or how do they see you giving yourself to the body? Third, Paul always connects the analogy of the body of Christ with the gifts of the Spirit and then with instruction about love. We see that pattern in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 12 is the body and the gifts. 1 Corinthians 13 is one of the greatest passages on love in the Bible. You know, Ephesians 4, we get the body, and then we get the gifts, and then we get uh, a passage on love in the body. And here in Romans, it's the same thing. Paul introduces the body metaphor in 12, 4 to 5. He describes the various gifts in 6 through 8, and then he exhorts us to love, and that's going to start in verse 9. Here's something I heard a long time ago from Pastor Tom Nelson, and I think he's correct. It's stuck with me. The Spirit of God intends to build the body of Christ up in love. He moves in us to show love to other people in line with our giftedness. So as you're walking with God, the needs you see and the way you're moved to love will manifest how the Holy Spirit is at work in you. He's moving in you to care for and build up and contribute to the body of Christ in a way that's in line with who he's made you to be and how he's gifted you. So your gifts come out as love and compassion. So what does this look like in a way that we present ourselves in the body? So imagine as one example that you know a couple in your church going through a rough time in marriage. How do you show love? Well, someone with the gift of giving might tell the husband, hey, you know what? I know you've been going through a rough time, and there's this great marriage conference coming up, and I want you to know that I've already signed you up and I paid for it. And I I want you to be blessed. The hotel's covered. The conference is covered. If it helps you guys, don't pay me back. Pay it forward. You help somebody else. If it doesn't, just don't worry about it. Just I just want you to have the chance to see if, it's, if it could help you out. Another person with the gift of mercy might say to the wife, let's go to coffee. And she would listen. And she would relate. And she might cry. And she would communicate. You are known. You are loved. The exhorter might kick somebody in the butt. You just got to shape up, man. Do you know what you have in your wife? Do you know what God is? I know you know what God has called you to do. And I I love you, bro. And you need to man up. Let's pray. The teacher might take the couple into the word or give a great book or a sermon series. They want to teach and help them see, you know, God's vision for marriage. The servant might offer to watch the kids for the weekend so they can go and get some time together. We meet needs. We love according to how the spirit is stirring in us. How is God calling you to present yourself in the body of Christ? What are the needs? How can you contribute? Not everybody has the same availability at every stage of life. If you've got little kids at home, you've got to be careful how much time you spend away from them at church. But what can you do? You have to think of your situation with sober judgment. How can you offer yourself as a member of the body? What is God calling you to do? One last thought, we don't always get to work in areas of giftedness. 
Sometimes God calls us to serve in an area of need. This is just a need. We need somebody to do this, whether you're gifted or not. And you may have a burden that you believe strongly needs to be addressed by your local church. You may believe 100% that God put that burden on your heart, that the church is failing if it doesn't reach out in this way, if it doesn't meet this need. God may have put that burden on your heart for you to do something about it, not your pastor to do something about it. This is a problem I see over and over in local church. There's a need. A layperson, kind of stirred up by the Holy Spirit, recognizes the need, and the layperson expects the pastor or the elders to meet the need. You know, a pastor is limited. He doesn't have all the gifts, and he doesn't have all the time. And elders are limited. They don't have all the gifts either, and they don't have all the time. And our church body is limited. There are certain things that we can contribute, but we have limited resources and limited time. If the Spirit of God has put the burden on your heart, you might be the solution to meeting that need. It's the right, it's the responsibility of elders in a church to respond respectfully to every need, but then they have to answer according to what God is teaching them or saying to them as leaders. And their response might be, you know, we are going to do something about that. You are so right. We need to, we need to address that. Or the response might be, you are exactly right. That's a huge need, and we think you're the person to do something about it. Or they might say, you know what? You're right. That's a need. It's not where our church is right now, and you could be the person to do something about it, but we don't believe yet. It's not the right time for you to take that on. It's not the right time for our church. We'd love you to contribute in what we're doing now as a, as a community, We'd love to see you grow in Christ and just see where God takes this burden, takes this vision that he's put on your heart. When Paul says, if you're gifted, use your gift, he does so with the understanding that we're part of a body, and being part of a body creates challenges. You know, we start by learning to regard ourselves with sound judgment and by accepting that God sees us as members of a body. And we seek over time to contribute to the body in accordance with our spiritual gifts. And that's going to require growth in love. Because as soon as we start contributing as members of the body, there's going to be mess. One of my favorite proverbs, where there are no oxen, the stables are clean. If we didn't have any people, everything would remain orderly. Everything would be clean. But as soon as you start adding people, as soon as we accept sinful people into our church, as soon as they let me in, we've got sin and we're going to have conflict and we're going to need to grow in love. Without love, the parts of the body grate on one another. Without love, the world can't see that we're true disciples of Christ. Love is essential. And that's Paul's topic for our next lesson. If you would like the text of this lesson with some resource questions, or if you'd like to see overview charts that go along with our study of Romans, then check out the resource page at observetheword.com.